This weekend, uh, we're going to begin a shorter topical series before we really get into our next uh, exegetical, or I should say expository sermon series in the fall. And I'm calling this Smoke Signals. Smoke Signals. Can everybody say that with me? Smoke Signals. And here's why uh, St. Augustine, uh, one of the early church fathers, said that our emotions, you know I'm on this emotions kick lately trying to discover my emotions. So I thought, well, let's try something we've never done before. Let's do a little sermon series, topical sermon series on our emotions. Okay? So St. Augustine said that our emotions often function like smoke from a fire. They tell us what's really going on in our hearts. I don't know that, uh, again, in 10 years we've done anything like this, Um, but how many of you know if you smell smoke in your house, it's never just okay to waft your hand through the air a bit and then, let's say, go to Aldi to go grocery shopping, okay? You wouldn't do that. You would be attentive to the source of the smoke, A few years ago, Shannon and I were upstairs in our home in Marshfield, and we started noticing the house get smoky. At first, we were both a little uncertain. Do you sense that? See that? Smell that? No, I I don't. Do you? Oh, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Oh, this is getting thicker. This is getting bad. This is, we got to figure out what's going on here. And then we were able to uh, see um, a thicker area, kind of in the upper stairwell, around the light fixture of our, it was a story and a half, so the, the second half story. And this is what I pulled out of there. A rubber dinosaur melted to a light bulb. So Levi, who was the only one old enough at the time to throw a rubber dinosaur high enough to land in the light fixture, must have done that on occasion, and it melted to the bulb, and that's what started uh, the smoke. See, you can wave your hand uh, around in the air all you want. You can even disarm the smoke detector a number of times. Um, But until you pull the melting dinosaur off of the light bulb, you're going to have problems, aren't you? So, in the same way, and you can flip past that now, Roy, uh, emotions are not usually the problem. They're only indicators of the problem. Um, With that image in mind, we're going to take the next few weeks to look at emotions Uh, As with smoke, the wise thing to do with emotions isn't to waft them away, nor is it to suppress them, nor is it to meditate them, nor is it even to manage them. We have emotions for a reason. They're God-given. The Bible would encourage them, encourage us to understand them, emotions, as indicators. Everybody say this. Emotions are indicators. One more time, emotions are indicators. All right. Your emotions indicate how happy you're feeling in life, how much of life you enjoy, how you see the world, how you treat other people. And the first emotion we're going to look at today is depression. Depression. Let me say this out of the gate. Depression, like many of our emotions, is complicated. 
Um, it operates along a continuum from discouragement to utter despairing. Um, and there's a lot in between. There's spiritual factors, there's physical factors, there's psychological factors, there's even social factors. Um, I'm going to focus primarily on the spiritual factors because I'm a pastor. I'm not an MD. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a counselor even professionally. I'm not a sociologist. So um, I'm not going to pretend that we can tackle depression through spiritual uh, resources and understanding alone, even, if it's bad enough. Um, God uh, made us with, with what uh, people have called psychosomatic unity, meaning that it's impossible under this side of heaven to separate our soul from our, for example, body. They're married. Um, have you realized, for example, how unspiritual you can become when you have very little sleep? Um, have you noticed that your propensity to sin goes up when you're hungry? Very hungry. Um, I can become impatient and rude when I'm hungry. I can become even more impatient and rude when I'm hot. Okay? I just get uh, to, a, to a place where, it, I mean, it doesn't justify my rudeness. I'm just acknowledging that my rudeness, which is a spiritual problem that my kids and wife sometimes encounter, is affected by heat, which is felt physically. They're married, the two are. So a physical condition can trigger and exacerbate our fallen humanity. Um, it doesn't mean that we ought not pray for patience, that we ought not pray for cool weather, in my case, uh, that we ought not pray for solutions, but it does mean that sometimes we ought to also take a nap. It does mean we ought to also eat a Snickers bar. It means we ought to also find some air conditioning or shed a layer, Okay. So again, I'm going to be focusing on uh, only spiritual dimensions. I will say just th though uh, tangentially, if you are in need of counseling in any way, I just want to make this a blanket uh, referral um, and of uh, Karis Counseling and True North Counseling in Wausau. Those are two of my favorites. I will tell you that Center of Human Development is also uh, a good place, but it has become less spiritual. Um, they don't incorporate the... Uh, the Christian focus as much as they used to, and it's a little more clinical. Sometimes people need that. Uh, True North and Karis are wonderful places if you need uh, some counseling. Did you know even counselors, I'm told, are required to have counseling? It's not anything to be embarrassed about. Sometimes in marriage, we need a third opinion. We need a neutral party. We need somebody to look at it objectively. We can't see clearly. It's all good. It's all okay. Depression begins with discouragement. You get discouraged about something that really starts to change your outlook on your life. Maybe your marriage isn't getting better. Maybe for a number of reasons you're resigning 
to the fact that your family isn't going to look like what you had always pictured your family to look like. Maybe it was no kids instead of three kids or five kids instead of two kids or whatever it may have been. Maybe you uh, have a shattered sense of who you are. Maybe you um, fell prone to addiction or you got cut from a team or you got passed up for a promotion or you got denied entry to a school or somebody broke up with you um, or a loved one passed away or you're still single, etc., etc. You, whatever it is, begin the process to depression with um, discouragement and and being down. You don't want to get out of bed eventually. Um, things uh, are, are bad now. They don't seem as though they're going to get any better. Would anyone raise your hand and say, I myself have experienced depression or I know somebody who deals with it? Okay, so it affects nearly everyone uh, in some capacity. It's very real. It's problematic. Um, whatever it is, people who are depressed look into the future. They see nothing but suffocating darkness. And uh, this brings us to someone in the Bible who was depressed. And it's the prophet Jeremiah. I'm going to read to you this morning from Lamentations 3, right in the middle of the Old Testament. It's right after the Psalms. If you have your Bible with you, it may surprise you um, when I tell you what this book, Lamentations, is about. It's a book of laments. What are laments? Laments are poems about things going very badly. That's what laments are. So we have five chapters in the book of Lamentations of poems of things going really badly. And what's interesting is that Lamentations is also poetic. Each chapter has 22 verses. This is because the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. Ours has 26. And so each verse starts with another letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is kind of a cool tidbit. Uh, The exception is uh, the uh, third chapter, which we're going to read from. It has 66 verses, and it's what's called a triple acrostic, meaning you have three verses starting with the same letter, and then three more verses starting with the same Hebrew letter, and so forth. Um, so this is what we get. I hate acrostics personally. They, they drive me nuts. Um, alliteration, you know, beginning each point with the same letter. I'll do it occasionally just because it fits. But um, this is what we find in the book of, of Lamentations. Mind you that Jeremiah lived, before we read what he has to say, during a time where in Israel um, the, the people were being delivered over to exile. Okay. So uh, once a very prosperous nation uh, living in the promised land, they'd hardened their hearts toward God, their creator, to the point that God turned them over to a pagan nation who would lead them, um, scores of people at a time, into captivity. And during uh, his life, Jeremiah witnessed multiple and violent deportations of his family and friends. And he's still on the ground in Jerusalem um, watching people be shuttled off to the pagan city of Babylon. And he's watched as Solomon's temple 
which was the spiritual symbol of God's favor and his blessing be destroyed, be torn down. And now here he stands, one of the remaining survivors, and he's telling everybody that the worst is far from over. Everybody who's still there. He's telling them, don't let the fact that you're still here lead you to believe that you're going to be here forever. They're going to come back. They're going to come after you. This is his job to tell people that they're coming back until nobody is left, okay? And to make matters worse, they didn't believe him. They called Jeremiah a traitor. Uh, They put him in a dungeon where he would write about sinking up to the armpits in mud. Uh, It was out of this hellhole that he composed this poetry that we're going to read today. Um, Any wonder why they are so dark in nature? So if you think you're in a bad situation, I want you to know that Jeremiah can relate to you. Uh, Your friends may not understand. Your family may not understand. I guarantee you Jeremiah would understand. He would get it. Verse 1, chapter 3. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath, of the rod of God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. The word driven that he uses here in verse 2 in the Hebrew means driven like an animal as in uh, as with a a whip. It's almost as if he's seen before his eyes the herds of Israel's possessions being being whipped, being driven, the people being driven like cattle out of his own homeland. Darkness without any light. How many of you uh, hate, hate, you're already starting to think about it, uh, nightfall at 4.30 p.m. in the afternoon, okay? I hate that about wintertime. Um, maybe you've heard of Ernest Shackleton, this, this uh, explorer who failed uh, to uh, get um, to cross Antarctica. Um, he, uh, his crew got stuck in an in a early freeze, and they survived for over a year in sub-zero temperatures, which is hard for anybody to even fathom how that could happen. And, but the thing, they were, they were, they were uh, I guess, interviewed, and, and, and they said, you know, honestly, the cold wasn't the, the struggle for us. The struggle, the, the worst part about Antarctica in our failed mission was what? It was the darkness. They said it nearly drove us insane. Um... They call it the polar darkness. May, basically, to August, the poles are completely dark. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine several months without an ounce of daylight? This is what these men navigated in. Um, so this is how Jeremiah feels. Days upon days of no light at all. Verse 3, surely against me he turns, God turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Important question is, again, who is Jeremiah talking about? He hasn't said it thus far. I've inserted it. But he's talking about God. That's who Jeremiah's talking about. 
He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. He's besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He's walled me about so I cannot escape. He's made chains heavy, my chains heavy, though I call and cry out for help. He shuts out my prayer. Has anybody ever felt like that? God is not listening, we think. Even more, we wonder, God, are you behind this? Are you orchestrating this? Are you conducting all of this in in my life? And at the very least, you're not stopping it. You could put an end to my suffering. You're all powerful. That's what my preacher tells me. Why don't you? Okay? The prophet Jeremiah was a real Christian in that, I want you to understand, he felt like this. This is real Christianity. This is the way he felt, okay? Give you a few other examples. Charles Spurgeon, real Christian, considered one of the best preachers of all time, had a beautiful, stunning beard. Amazing man. Smoked a pipe, just looked masculine as he could be. Great preacher. He said this, I've spent more days shut up in depression than probably anybody else here. He was referring to his 15,000 member congregation. He was said by many again to be the greatest preacher that ever lived. He frequently considered quitting because he was depressed. Martin Luther was a real Christian. He went through times so dark that his wife removed all the knives from the home because she was afraid he was going to hurt himself or someone else. Martin Luther. A mighty fortress is our God. Bum, 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 No, I'm just kidding. But he was a little depressed. There have been many a preachers, even, for, for a season, who didn't want to talk about God. But they did every Sunday. Didn't want to preach words about God. They just wanted to rage against God. Um, I want you to see that you're not alone if you have these thoughts. Verse 9, he's blocked my ways with blocks of stones. God has made my paths crooked. Every time I see a way out and start to make headway, he's saying God crushes it. Verse 10, he's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. Let me ask you this. What's your favorite way to picture God this morning? Is it a bear waiting to maul you? Is it a lion waiting to devour you? This was Jeremiah's picture in this moment of his creator. Verse 11, he turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. Not many people memorize those three verses. (laughs) Verses 11 through 13 of Lamentations 3. 
I've become the laughingstock of all peoples, the objects of their taunts all day long. He's filled me with bitterness, God has. He sated me with wormwood. This is a, a bitter herb that the Jews represented uh, in uh, therein the judgment of, of God. Verse 16, he's made my teeth. I hate this. I hate this picture. He's made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. And I'll skip to verse 20. And I'll read a different translation. My soul remembers, you see, my soul remembers all of this and is depressed within me. The ESV says, my soul is bowed down. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the prophet of God. And this is how he feels. This is where his emotions are. Let's close in prayer. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're not going to leave it there, okay? Um, how many of you are thinking, is this the Bible? Like, shouldn't this have been weeded out? I mean, what about still waters and cups runneth over and lying down in green pastures and lions with lambs? God put this book in the Bible, even though it's depressing, and most of you will never read it, but because... He wants those of you to, who suffer, he wants you to know that he knows how you feel. He knows how you feel. And it's okay for you ex to express your emotions to God. Why does God put laments in the Bible? Because he knows that our lamenting is not accurate, but it's honest. It's not accurate. It's not truth. But it's honest. It's forthcoming. It is how he felt in the moment. And true faith starts with honesty before God. That's where it begins. But it doesn't stop there. Aren't you glad it doesn't stop there? Faith may start with airing our grievances, but it doesn't stop there. Verse 21, but this I call to mind. This may be one of the most profound transitions in all the Bible. I want you to see him here in his dungeon, mud up to his armpits, thinking about the children he lost into captivity, the wife he may have lost into captivity wrestling with a prospect he may never see them again, and defiantly declaring this, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord, he is my portion. 
says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And I'll skip to verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. And this is Jeremiah's answer to the spiritual dimension of depression. He shows us what to do in the middle of our despairing. These are the middle verses, mind you, of the middle chapter in a book that is otherwise full of despairing poetry. This is what he tells us. Call to mind the goodness of God. He uses those words, call to mind. Um, this I call to mind, says Jeremiah, therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Where does, uh, what does Jeremiah call to mind? He calls to mind the goodness of God. That's what he calls to mind. What this means is, is that like any good father, God allows his kids to go through pain but he never enjoys it. He only allows it because he knows it's going to produce greater joy in the end. That's why the Father allows it. How do we know God is good? How did Jeremiah come to that conclusion? Well, because of what his word reveals about his character. Otherwise, did God or didn't God save the children of Israel from Pharaoh's hand? Well, he did. Did he or didn't he provide food for them in the wilderness? He did. What about us? Did God or didn't God send Jesus to die on the cross and forgive us of our sins? Well, he, he did. Did Jesus on the earth show that his heart was broken for every sinner that he came into contact with. The woman at the well, Zacchaeus, the rich young ruler, when he set his face to Jerusalem and took the whole city and its lostness into account. Well, of course, healing and compassion flowed out of the person of Jesus Christ. God is good. Do you know that? God is not evil. We feel depressed. That's our emotion, but we know that he's good, and so did Jeremiah. He uses the words call to mind because if you think about it inherently, it's something we have to do. We have to decide to do. Call is a verb, right? It's an action verb. There, there's, there's action there. We've got we to do something. We've got to bring to mind a thought that's not naturally in our minds. He had to put it there for himself. I call that preaching to myself. There are times where I've got to put something here because it's not here. There's a sense here in the scripture that we need to learn how to talk to ourselves at times. Our emotions, they don't have brains. Our emotions cannot think. 
they, can, they can't demonstrate faith. And so we have to call to mind things. We have to tell things to come into our minds. We have to think for our emotions. A lot of Christians get, we walk by faith, not by sight. But they don't get, we walk by faith, not by feelings. We don't walk by our feelings. Amen? For many, what they feel, this is just terrifying to me, but it's so true. For many, what they feel is the, is the greatest, most reliable indicator for what they think is true. Whatever they feel in a given moment, that's what they think is true. I feel like God has forgotten me, therefore it must be true. I feel distant from God, therefore it must be true. Jeremiah basically says, I feel all those things, but God's word tells me that my feelings are not true. That's what God's word says. So I choose to believe him even when I can't feel him. Martin Luther used to call this drowning out the voices of the despair, uh, drowning out the voices of despair with the gospel. That's what Martin Luther used to say. At times, he would physically, Martin Luther, the great hymn writer, the great preacher, the great reformer, shout at the devil, No! I have not been abandoned. I have not been forsaken. God's word tells me. Jesus' death proves it. No! I mean, maybe we should try that occasionally, right? When we're not feeling God's nearness, uh, go somewhere private when you do that, when you yell at the devil, Okay, don't let them associate you with the mill church when you do that, okay? Um, but do it. Put the devil in his place. Put the lies in their place. We need to call to mind the acts of his faithfulness. Second, learn any lessons God is trying to teach you. Verses 26 through 28. Um, I want to be careful with this one because I don't, I don't want to imply that in whatever suffering we're going through, we're going through it because God has some great lesson for us to learn in it. Um, that's not why we go through it. Um, there is nothing, in fact, that indicates that Jeremiah is in the suffering he is, he's in because of anything he has done. Okay? Um, still, look what he learns. Verse 26, It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of, Lord, of the Lord. He's waiting. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit down alone in silence when it's laid on him. Church, often God does his best work when we suffer, even when we don't know why we suffer. Let me uh, give you a few things God may be doing. Sometimes in our suffering, God's trying to remove an idol from our life. Psalm 119.71, my suffering was good for me because it taught me to pay attention to your decrees, to your laws, to your rules. Sometimes God uses suffering to get our attention. Um, when this happens, you generally know exactly what it is because the Holy Spirit lays it on you. You know you're to change. Sometimes God may, may be trying to humble us in suffering. Sometimes God uses times of waiting to prepare us for ministry. Um, God can teach us things through our suffering. The last one I'll leave you with is this. God's plans are ultimately for good uh, and for blessing. Look at verses 24 and, uh, and, and 32. They, they demonstrate this. There's really two 
different extreme extremes that people resort to when they're suffering. Um, some in the midst of suffering will say, will say, well, Jesus uh, told us in the world we'll have tribulation, we'll have suffering. Um, that means there's no use really to pray to get out of suffering. This is just our lot. This is where we're supposed to be. Suffering happens. These are typically the reformers. Uh, these are the, the, the Lutherans. These are the um, more uh, mainline evangelicals, we could, we could call them. Um, they say we should expect misery and pain and disappointment, but God will help us uh, through it. Um, those uh, kinds of Christians love deep theology books. Okay? There's another side of us, this is typically Assemblies of God and other Pentecostal or evangelical churches who say, no, God has appointed us to walk in blessing. That's what God has for all of us. Um, it's the story uh, of Joseph um, that's used to, to rile Christians together. You may, you may be in the pit, you may be in the prison, but one day you'll be in the palace. I mean, those three Ps have used, been used in every sermon on Joseph, you know, ever. We need, we're going we're gonna to find our blessing. We're going we're gonna to arrive someplace one day, okay? The blessing's right around the corner. If you'll just hang on, you can turn on any Sunday morning and see this on television, Okay? In just a few days, you'll be appointed king of Egypt. <laughs> so goes the theology in charismatic circles. Okay? Both answers, here's the thing, are partially correct. But they're not fully correct in and of themselves. Notice what Jeremiah says. First, he says, the Lord is my portion, verse 24. Therefore, I will hope in him. I just learned this in this study, never known this. We, we look at Mary and Martha, and we think portion means food, but the word uh, in its basic form means land, inheritance. And he, he says, God is my, think about it, his land is being stripped away by the Babylonians. He's being deported from his land, and he says, God is my land. God is my portion. God's better than the land. And then in verse 22, I want to encourage you last. Uh, I said last on the last one, but this is actually the last one. Um, get up tomorrow, if you haven't already today, and look for the new mercies of God. I love that verse. God's mercies are new every morning. God's mercies are new every morning. We say that, we hear that, we don't realize it comes from one of the most depraved, despairing individuals in, in the heat of his suffering. And the steadfast love of, of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The last thing I'll leave for, with you is this. I don't know about you, but I love the imagery of a new morning I love the morning in general. Anybody else here love the morning? It's just the most beautiful time of day, right? All the old people raise their hands. Did you notice that? No, none of the younger folks in the room raise their hands. Um, the idea that there's mercies available in the morning when today had nothing but shadows and darkness and sin, that's an encouraging thought to me. 
Yesterday may have felt terribly dark. Today or tomorrow, yesterday full of mistakes and despair. Today, God's mercies rise new. They rise fresh with light, with warmth, with meaning, with purpose, with value. Isn't that awesome? Every morning. So in your depression, don't forget that. God, I had this somewhere in my notes. God doesn't attempt to remove suffering from you. He intends to be with you through suffering. I think that's the most theologically helpful, constructive, true way of looking at suffering. He plans to be with us in it. Amen? Father, I just pray this morning for any in our uh, congregation here in our church who are struggling with depression. I just pray, God, you would, you'll lift them out of it. Lord, I pray um, that among, among uh, UV light lamps and uh, advice and exercise and maybe even medication, God, that you would help us see the spiritual dimension behind depression. Lord, that we would be able to air our grievances to you, but also know that your mercies are new every morning. Also know that you're our rock. Also know that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Also know that you're faithful and good. And I pray that our knowledge of a good father will get us through seasons of suffering, of challenge, of despairing. In Jesus' name, amen.